The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, if you're new, if this is your first time, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service, so please come up and say hi if you get a chance to. Um, I love Advent. I really love this season that we're going through. I think every year in life I appreciate it more and more, and I think it's a really important um, process for us to go through as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. So um, we've had some great work done so far with uh, Josh, like Pete mentioned, and then week one with Drew. They've taken us already through Matthew chapter one. And um, so this morning we're continuing that story. We're continuing the the main themes that they've set up for us and um, jumping into Matthew two. So if you have your Bible or a device that you read the Bible on, go ahead and pull it out. And it's going to be on the screen behind me, too. Um, But if you have it, I encourage you to to get it and to see it for yourself, because these are the words of God. So we're going to be in Matthew 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is a pretty familiar story, right? Um, Three wise men, no real surprise here. We even heard about it sung in the song this morning. But I bet as, um, as we read it, as you were reading through it, there's probably uh, one of two different images that popped in your head. One of them was probably that Christmas carol, We Three Kings. You know, Now, you can thank me later for having it stuck in your head all day. <clears throat> or uh, a nativity set. So we've set up our decorations for Christmas, and you get out, and every, you know, a lot of people have a nativity set where there's three wise men. But to, um, so it's a, familiar, it's a familiar scene. But to kind of get the ice broken here, to break the ice this morning... Let's do a little pop quiz, okay? True or false, there were three wise men. 
That's good. I got some participation. I, wasn't, I thought that was going to be rhetorical. Good. Actually, we don't know either. They had three gifts, but we don't know how many there actually were. It just says the Magi. So there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there could have been a plethora of Magi who all had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we don't, we don't know for sure. Here's another thing that you might find kind of surprising or interesting about the story. In our nativity sets, they're right there with Jesus in the, in the manger. <clears throat> but actually, what we find is that they visited him long a, a, a while after he'd been born in a house, not in the, in the stable or the manger. So Jesus actually at this point could have been up to close to two years old at the most. But it wasn't necessarily what we think of right there with the shepherds and the angels. So the reason I bring that up is that this familiarity and, and cultural like, sense of folklore that we have around certain Bible stories can actually be a roadblock for us. We develop these cultural traditions that tend to kind of numb us to the true details of the stories. And therefore, they potentially desensitize us from the magnitude of what's actually going on in, these, in the Bible that we read. Have you ever stopped to question this story? Have you ever been setting up your nativity set and been like, that's kind of weird. Why are these three guys here? You know? Angels make sense, right? Shepherds, shepherds do. <clears throat> but why, the, question, the question that we're asking that is, why is this here? That should really be the question that we ask every time we come to any passage in the Bible. Why is this here? Why did God ordain this to be in His Word? But it's particularly relevant in a situation like this, where it's a story that's kind of cliche. There's a lot of parts of the Bible that we get kind of over-familiar with. And so we need to ask this question, why is this here? Think about it. Without the Magi, without this visit of the three wise men, the story of Christmas happens completely, perfectly fine. It goes off without a hitch. Jesus comes, humanity is saved. So what's Matthew trying to teach us or show us here by including this account? The wise men are definitely, they definitely are main characters in the story, but I believe that the main point of the story is not as much about them as it is about Matthew continuing to show us the nature of Jesus' status as the king. Drew kind of talked about this already in week one. I'm not sure how the wise men got labeled as kings, like the song says, we three kings. Um, not sure exactly how that happened, but they were considered magi which meant that they were like from a priestly class. They were dignitaries, they were, they were a high class people. And, um, but there's nothing in there that really shows us that it was actually kings that they were. But we do meet two different kings in this story. As Drew had mentioned a couple weeks ago, the kingdom of Jesus, his kingdom, is a huge part of his book. It's a huge theme for Matthew. And this passage, I think, continues to show us the scope of Jesus' kingdom. So one of the ways we see this, we narrow in on the scope of Jesus' kingdom, is by being able to compare the two kings that we see in the story. So we see two. We see Herod, and we see baby Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, is comparing these two kings. So who's the first king that we meet in the story? In verse 1, we're introduced to Herod the king. And then in verse 3, it says it again right away. It calls him Herod the king. What would the first listeners of the story know about Herod the king? What would they have known about this king of the Jews? <clears throat> so here's some background information on him. So 
He ruled in Israel and Judea, in Judah, for about 33 years total, which most of that was before Jesus was born. Before Jesus had come to earth, the body of Herod's reign had already happened. So by birth, Herod was actually an Edomite, which means that he was, um, he was actually not a Jew by birth. He was a convert to Judaism. He was not a descendant from Jacob, but, or, or let alone from the royal Davidic line. <clears throat> and he actually he got to power by battling his way into power. So there was like a three-year civil war that he led. He took the charge, and he took over, and, and took over power um, of the region. But his authority was delegated to him from Rome. So the Roman Empire presided, and his power that he had was under the rule of Rome. So he really had no ethnic or religious claim to his title or position as, as uh, king. He was there by force, and he maintained his rule at the permission of Rome. So ultimately, his authority was delegated to him, and his kingdom was geographical, limited to the boundaries of Israel and Judah. King Herod eventually came to be known as Herod the Great, which had mostly to do with his ambitious ar architectural projects. So that's kind of what he was known for, was these vast architectural projects, one of which was uh, completing the, the Jewish temple, redoing that. So he was definitely an accomplished and powerful man, but his rule had no history and no future beyond the legacy that he'd have to create for himself through his projects and his reputation and potentially his, his bloodline. Another thing we know about Herod is that he was a cutthroat, ruthless man. It's said that earlier in his life, he actually arranged to have his wife and, his, uh, and a few of his sons actually murdered. That's how, because he didn't trust him. That's how ruthless he was. Our passage this morning in, uh, in verse 3 says that when he got the news of, of a different king being born, he was deeply troubled. Which this is actually really a major understatement because as we see several verses later, after our passage, our passage ends at verse 12, right after that is the story, maybe you're familiar with it, when Herod actually ordered the death of all Jewish males in the area under two years old. He ordered them all to be killed. So that's how he reacted to hearing of another king potentially threatening his power. That's how aggressive Herod was. So his power, his power was uh, delegated and inevitably temporary. The boundaries of his kingdom were geographical, and he was a tyrant. So this is the first king the Magi and the readers meet. And what do they do? What do they do when they meet him? They're completely dismissive of him. It's actually kind of funny, if you think about it. They're like, they come up, they come to the king, they're like, hey, know you're the king, but we're actually looking for the real king, so can you show us where he is? Think of that, what that does to his ego. So the other king we see in the story is obviously Jesus, baby Jesus. After seeing Herod and learning a little about him, what do we see in comparison about Jesus' kingdom? This pilgrimage that we read about of the Magi shows us that Jesus is the true king of the Jews, the king of all the nations, and the king of all creation. The claim that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews was made right away in this passage by the Magi in verse 2. From the east they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So right away the Magi are claiming that Jesus is really the king. The Magi's interest in this king was piqued, like it says, by the appearance of the star. But the question is, so they saw the star and they came and they're looking for the king of the Jews. How did they know to follow the star? And, how to, and even more curious is, why did they think it would lead them to the king of the Jews? The answer is in Numbers 24:17, where Balaam prophesies that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So we don't know exactly where these Easterners, we just know these Magi are from the East. We don't know exactly um, what country they're from. But it's safe to say that we know that they came from somewhere that had some interaction with the old Jewish prophecies. So, that, so in order to know what they knew. They interpreted that the star that they saw would lead them to the one who is prophesied to be the king of Israel. Now, the religious, the religious experts they consulted with knew exactly what they were looking for because as soon as they heard them come and heard what they were looking for, they were familiar with that prophecy and they <clears throat> pointed the wise men directly to Bethlehem. This time from Micah 5.2, which we see here in verse 6. Excuse me. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We see that this prophesied scepter from Israel is expected to be born in Bethlehem and that he is in fact supposed to be a ruler. He's one who would act as a shepherd of God's people. So this language of shepherd associated with being a king uh, foreshadows Jesus as being the, uh, an even better David, who is Israel's most famous and beloved king. And we know from chapter 1 that Drew preached on two weeks ago that this Jesus is, in fact, a direct blood descendant from the Davidic line. So this the shepherding king who actually has Davidic roots, this is a very different picture from Herod. This account of the Magi is Matthew again making clear through the prophecies, that in fact Jesus is the true King of Israel. But the major significance of this pilgrimage of the Magi is that Jesus is not just the King of Israel, but that this forecasted Christ is the King of all the nations. So it's not just that He is the King of Israel and the King of the nations, but it's actually specifically because He is the King of Israel that He is the, the, therefore the King and hope of all nations. This visit of the Magi that we read about is of huge significance. I just touched on it a minute ago, but we don't know exactly what ethnicity or country these men are from, but due to their status as Magi, we know that their and their knowledge of Jewish prophecy, many experts think that these men are from Persia or Babylon from the east. We don't know that for sure, but that's kind of a consensus that people think where they're from. As Magi, they had a particular interest in the study of astrology, ancient wisdom, and magic. So these men were, were foreigners. They were ethnically, vocationally, and culturally outside the Jewish beliefs and traditions. Yet these foreigners were particularly interested in worshiping the king of Israel. This represents something huge, like I said. 
I want to take us back to a passage that Drew shared two weeks ago. It's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Kind of, you maybe heard it before, kind of famous passage in the Old Testament. Now the Lord God, now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As God begins to reveal his master plan early in Genesis to bless the entire world, he promises Abraham that he will become a great nation and that through his descendants, all of the earth will be blessed. God made the nation of Israel and the eventual rule of David to come from Abraham's descendants like we saw in chapter 1. The plan all along was for the nation to be a vehicle of God's blessing to all the ends of the earth. Israel was to be great, not for their own sake and their own greatness, but for the sake of the whole world. And now, at the time of the Magi's visit, we have the religious and cultural insiders sitting under Roman rule after a long history of exile and judgment, trying to lead the charge to make Israel great again through their various traditions and laws. But in the midst of all of their scriptural knowledge and religious practice, they remained completely ignorant that a major sign of God's plan to fulfill his promise of blessing to the nations through Israel was literally knocking at their door. The final king of Israel had come to succeed where they had previously failed, to be a light to the nations and now to be a shepherd for his people, both Jew and Gentile. But the story, this story shows us that his reign doesn't stop there. He's the king of the Jews, He's the king of all the nations, but he's also the king of all creation. He's the king, even the cosmos is under his control, under his command. And now here's where we get to talk about that mysterious star that I'm sure some people are wondering about. What was the star that moved? So there's actually a number of different philosophical and theories on um, kind of the, a research-based scientific background to what this star actually was. It ranges from ranges. Some of the theories range from comets to supernova to planetary conjunctions. But regardless of what exactly took place in the cosmos at that time, there can be no uh, <clears throat> no natural explanation for what happens in verse nine, where it says that the star it went before them and came to rest over the place where the child was. Something supernatural was happening. The movement of the stars in unexplainable ways. Was, was there to signify the coming of the birth of Jesus. To be preoccupied here with looking for the exact physical explanation of what was happening is to miss the point. So we shouldn't be preoccupied with that because Matthew is not concerned with the scientific viability of his story or worried about having to defend the accuracy of the movement of the star. He's telling this story after just the passage before claiming that God has come to dwell with humans as a baby. So the star is kind of the least of our problems, right? When God is coming as a baby. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of the church, we never see God's relationship to this world at the mercy 
of physical and natural boundaries, but actually the opposite. I mean, yes, we do see God bound to the way of life by coming as a man, but Jesus' ministry is characterized by constantly showing that the, the nature and the world and the physical laws are under his command. We see God revealing himself as a source of all that is and the Lord over every natural law. So add this supernatural, this supernatural event, cosmic event, to the list of miraculous events we've already seen in one chapter. So the angels have appeared to Joseph in dreams to communicate with him. So there's been dreams, there's been prophecy being fulfilled, a virgin has conceived, and a baby was born who we're told is God with us, Emmanuel, like Josh preached on last week. Matthew isn't concerned with a viable story. He's concerned with presenting to us without shame or inhibition, the king who has the power over every element of creation. So like I mentioned at the beginning, we need to go beyond the quaint folklore of the nativity set and dig into what the story means, what the strange foreign pilgrimage shows us about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. What did it mean for the lives of the first hearers of this story and for our lives today? The claim that Jesus is the king of everything, every nation, and even over time and space is a very invasive and even offensive claim. We see this right away in Herod, in Herod's reaction to this. Remember? He was frantic and he immediately started scheming as to protect his kingdom and his rule and his identity. He was a man who'd built his whole identity and hope on his accomplishments and his efforts for his own legacy. And a claim that there was another king other than himself made him completely hostile. Hostile to the point, like we said, of having every young boy under two murdered in the area to protect his rule and his kingdom. He was going to stop at nothing to protect himself from the invasion of his kingdom. The other thing we, we see in the story we haven't talked about yet is not the kings, but we see the religious leaders and we see their apathy and their indifference. <clears throat> this is the scribes and the chief priests. They knew the scripture well enough to point the wise men directly to Bethlehem. They knew where the king was going to be born. They knew how to find the Messiah. Yet they were so confident in their own knowledge, their heritage, and their practice that they completely missed the fulfillment and heart of all of their knowledge. The Savior of the nations, the event the whole Old Testament had eagerly been anticipating, was here, and they were too prideful to see it. They didn't believe. Here's the thing. Their responses, Herod and the scribes and, and uh, religious leaders, they may have been completely different, maybe opposites, hostility and indifference. But they come down to the same heart issue. They are on the thrones of their own lives. So whether it's through hostile rule or ethnic pride or the pursuit of knowledge, both Herod and the religious authorities saw themselves on the throne. They saw themselves as the kings over their own lives. <clears throat> and here's the swift punch to the gut that the Bible gives us. I'm Herod. You're Herod. That's what we see back in Genesis 3 
at the beginning of the Bible. At the fall of Adam and Eve and ever since, humanity has been plagued with sin. Plagued with being estranged from God. By saying to him, basically, essentially, this is what happened in the garden, and this is what we've done ever since. No thanks, God. I don't trust you. I trust myself, and I'll stop at nothing to protect my kingdom and my identity. This sermon is about two kings. At first we compared Herod and Jesus, but really the two kings in question here are Jesus and you. Whether you're a skeptic in the room or a professing Christian, how are you building your kingdom? Are you finding your security and value in knowledge, your religious involvement, your patriotism, your race, your accomplishments, your children? Professing Christian, are you shocked that you're a Christian? You should be. If we ever get lulled into not being surprised that we're a Christian, it shows us that we don't really understand the good news, just like the religious leaders. The Bible tells us that the accomplishments and identities that we build are not what make us insiders with God. They're actually what make us enemies of God. But take heart. The good news of Christmas is that the Savior, the worthy King of our life, is here. He left his heavenly status and comfort to become an outsider in our world to the point of his death at the hands of the people he created and loved. He was born to die and to rescue us from the imminent demise of our own kingdoms. The Bible is clear. Our kingdoms have one destination, and he'll give us exactly what we seek, our eternal self-rule among other selfish self-rulers for all of eternity, eternally estranged from God. But the good news is this, that through faith in Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, He deals with our sin. He pays for our sin. And through that, we have the promise of new life under a king, a new king, for his eternal glory and our eternal joy. Just like the wise men showed us, pursuing and worshiping this king is worthy of going any distance. It's worthy of leaving our egos and bowing down. It's worthy of our greatest treasures. It's worthy of risking our lives to protect. So church, This Advent and every day of our lives, come, behold, behold Jesus, the King of Israel, the King of the nations, the King of all of creation, the the rightful King of your life. Let's pray.